welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as Jedi Mind Flicks, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner. On this season, The Chosen One. Why were they chosen? Do they want to be chosen? And why are we so attracted to these sorts of stories? We're joined today by Dr. Andrew Mark Henry to talk about Star Wars Episode 3, The Revenge of the Sith. Andrew is a scholar of early Christianity with a research focus on late Roman magical practices and demonology. He's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Mind and Culture, a non-profit research centre in Boston, Massachusetts. Andrew also manages Religion for Breakfast, a hugely popular YouTube channel dedicated to online religious literacy education. It is well worth checking out. There is a ton of great features on there. Welcome, Andrew. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, Religion for Breakfast. We are curious, why breakfast? Why not Religion for Elevensies, which I think is the superior meal? <laughs> yeah, or it could have been Religion for Second Breakfast. It's, a, it's, to be honest, a completely random name. I could try to retcon it and be like, oh, I was wanting like healthy daily bites of religious studies. But the actual answer is I wanted a name that was search engine optimized, so it needed to have the word religion in it. I wanted something that was disarming because religion is potentially a vitriol topic in social media spaces so i wanted it to be you know let's say fun disarming venue to learn about religion so i was like it needs to be silly but not too silly so i turned to a band name generator mm. so if you have a rock band and you want to name your band something weird and random you know like red jumpsuit apparatus or whatnot <laughs> uh, i typed in the word religion and i hit the refresh button a bajillion times until the words breakfast religion appeared on screen and i just kind of stopped i was like breakfast religion hmm and i, and I just kind of flipped it in my mind like religion for breakfast and I'm like ah oh, that's it like I just knew I instantly hit on it and from that name uh, flowed out the the design language of the channel which is all based on vintage era frosted flakes boxes so if you type in frosted flakes box from the 1950s you'll notice a very similar design language to the religion for breakfast logo oh that's fabulous nice. So we're here to talk about Star Wars Episode 3. Can we ask, what's your experience with the franchise before seeing this film? Have you watched many Star Wars? Did you come to this fairly fresh? Yeah, I would say I'm a, I'm a heavy Star Wars user. <laughs> like I have been watching Star Wars since I was a very young young kid. I had pretended to do lightsaber battles. I had Lego Star Wars models all over my room. I had the movies memorized. Like me and my brother would just whip out Star Wars quotes. Whoever could use a Star Wars quote in context, the most creative way possible would just like win the prize for the day. So yeah, deep, deep and abiding knowledge of Star Wars. And was this in the run up to episode three coming out? Even when episode three was coming out, I was already deep in the Star Wars world. So I was 16 when it came out. And I think I started watching Star Wars when I was like fifth or sixth grade. So pretty young. And I feel like there is kind of a sweet spot to become inculcated into mm. the Star Wars brand. There's a, there is an age where you're too young to get it. And I think there's an age where you, you're too old to get it. It's very rare to find someone convert to Star Wars fandom as an adult because they're pretty campy movies. They're not amazing movies. But there is like this magical age between like seven and 14 years old where I think you can really dive deep. Mm -hmm. So did you start with Star Wars Episode One then or did you see four, five, six before one, two, three? Uh, I had seen four, five, six. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade when episode one aired. And I remember being excited about it. So I think already by fourth or fifth grade, I was a fan enough to watch it. So yeah, I was I already had watched the original trilogy before the prequels launched. 
I feel like I'm probably about as young as can be with that same experience. I was five when episode one came out, but I had already seen the original trilogy and was a mm. Star Wars fan before that. So we went went to see that in the cinema. But then I was also at that age where as the prequel trilogy came out, it was, oh, I love these. These are wonderful films. And then going back and watching them as an adult, you have slightly different feelings about them, but we will come all into that. At this point in our show... Before we really get into the reason why we're here, we're going to do a brief film summary just to refresh our memories and make sure we're all on the same page. So please imagine the following text in a yellow font slowly crawling up the screen to John Williams' epic score. Star Wars Revenge of the Sith is a 2005 film written and directed by George Lucas. It's the final film in the prequel trilogy and the sixth Star Wars film in total. Revenge of the Sith is set three years after the onset of the Clone Wars that we see in Star Wars 2, and Obi-Wan Kenobi spends a lot of the time sent on a mission to defeat General Grievous, the head of the Separatist army, and put an end to the war. Meanwhile, Anakin Skywalker is given a seat on the Jedi Council, but he's not granted the rank of Master. After Palpatine, the Supreme Chancellor of the Galactic Republic, basically forces the Jedi Council's hand to get Anakin that seat. In turn, the Council tasks Anakin with spying on Palpatine. They, like Senator Padme Amidala, can sense that something is not quite right with Palpatine, and they're right because he is a secret Sith Lord. Also, Anakin and Padme are secretly married. That happens at the end of the second movie. And Anakin keeps having visions of Padme dying in childbirth with their secret baby from their secret marriage. So all is not well with Anakin. He's angry he didn't become a master. He's uncomfortable spying on Palpatine, and he's fearful for Padme. Palpatine quite easily uses all of this to manipulate Anakin into turning to the dark side of the Force and becoming his apprentice, Darth Vader. Dun-dun-dun. So the main cast on this is huge. We have Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan, Natalie Portman as Padme, Hayden Christensen as Anakin, Ian McDermott as Palpatine, Samuel L. Jackson as Mace Windu, Christopher Lee as Count Dooku, Anthony Daniels and Kenny Baker are C-3PO and R2-D2 respectively, Jimmy Smits as Senator Organa and Frank Oz as Yoda, and I think that just about covers it. There's always a lot to cover in Star Wars, right? Yes. <laughs> so much. And especially, this is quite a pivotal film in the saga. As we've been recording this season, we've been thinking about Chosen One figures. One of the things we've identified that we have interested to hear your thoughts on are the support system that lots of Chosen Ones seem to have. So there are these different figures that really catch the Chosen One at particular points in their journey. They are there for them when they're at their lowest or they somehow set them on their path. And we see a few of these in Star Wars, but they occupy a slightly different role in some ways. So mentors seem to fail. People who are meant to be that support seem to almost enable Anakin in some ways. But is this something you see developing not just in this film, but further out throughout Star Wars? Or is Anakin kind of particularly unique as a chosen one whose support system just collapses around him almost? Yeah, so in terms of like title of chosen one, like Anakin is literally the chosen one. So in terms of a support network, he has Padme, who starts off as this friend in episode one, but by episode three is a secret wife and a secret mother to his future child. They don't yet know it's going to be twins. 
And so you kind of have that support network, but she's sidelined in some respects because it's a secret relationship. And then obviously you have this mentorship relationship with Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's his reluctant master at first, because in episode one, Obi-Wan is kind of disdainful of Anakin. He doesn't seem to trust Anakin, doesn't seem to like him very much. And so Qui-Gon Jinn, who's Obi-Wan's master, takes Anakin under his wing. And Obi-Wan becomes the master to Anakin kind of accidentally. And that's the main mentorship slash support network I think we see throughout the prequel trilogy and especially in episode three. I don't I don't know how much Padme actually factors in. She's definitely like a, a plot device driving Anakin's hmm. decision making process in episode three. His whole mission is to try to prevent her from dying. He gets these visions that she's going to die. In the main trilogy, you know, Luke Skywalker is the main character and he has possibly a more robust support group. You know, Han and Leia seem to be closer friends to him than Padme and Obi-Wan seem to Anakin. Even the droids factor more into the story. So R2-D2 kind of is a sounding board for Luke Skywalker as he kind of talks to R2 as they fly to Dagobah. I don't think R2 really functions like that in the prequel trilogy. So definitely a more robust support network for Luke than for Anakin. Yeah, I think we've sort of been identifying this as maybe one of those places where Anakin falls down as a chosen one because Padme should be that support system, but by agreeing to be in a relationship with him, by desiring something that goes against the Jedi Code, she is enabling him to deceive others. And the mentorship thing also seems to fail because it's being very much guided by this idea that he's going to be this great chosen one figure. And so all of these places where he has a lot of really obvious failures in his character, they kind of just let them go. Yeah. And he especially gets a competing mentor with Palpatine in episode three. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obi-Wan is sidelined. He's literally sent off on a mission solo, leaving Anakin behind on Coruscant, the capital planet. There's several pivotal scenes in the movie where it's just Palpatine and Anakin. Some of that, I think, is a narrative failure of the prequels. They should have shown this relationship developing in episodes one and two, which they barely develop. So they kind of shove in as much as they can in episode three. But there's some of the better scenes of the movie, too, is the Palpatine and Anakin conversations, because you can kind of see the manipulation happening. And because Anakin has been isolated from his his network, both Padme and Obi-Wan, it's really just this new antagonist mentor filling that role. So we've raised a few other tidbits around Anakin's role. But one of them was particularly these visions. Mm. So what role do these visions play in his motivation? And are there any ties to other, let's say, quote unquote, religious textual traditions that seem to have this same role of visions? The visions play a role in Revenge of the Sith because they kind of catalyze his decision making. So he, he sees Padme dying and wants to try to stop that. It echoes something that happens in Empire Strikes Back, where Luke sees a vision of Han and Leia being killed by Vader, and that catalyzes him to go off and face Vader. But I I think the religious themes are more strong about his role for being the chosen one. I mean, in The Phantom Menace, he's the product of a virgin birth. Mm. There's no father when Shmi Skywalker gets pregnant with Anakin Skywalker. It's just... It is a literal virgin birth. And then you have this concept of prophecy. So this kind of vague Jedi prophecy that there is a chosen one who will bring balance to the force. And it's super vague, but in some respects, I think that's realistic for prophecies where it's, it's, it's very much open to interpretation. And the way that Obi-Wan interprets it, it's seen as a prophecy failure. Hmm. You know, you were the chosen one. You were supposed to destroy the Sith, not join them. So for him, for the chosen one prophecy to come true, it should have been destroyed the Sith. A few of the films that we have in this season deal quite a lot with prophecy. So we have Dune, and there's a lot of prophecy-driving narrative in Dune. And then we've also looked at The Last Temptation, and in that, we see Jesus using prophecy to guide his self-understanding of his own actions. 
What we get in this film with the prophecy is this idea of bringing balance to the force. And I found myself sort of confused thinking about this, which is in line with prophecy. Like, you're right, prophecy always is, it can be interpreted in many ways, and it's one of the things that makes prophecy sort of dangerous. But it seems to be that you bring balance to the Force by destroying the Sith. But in the first Star Wars, we're told that the Jedi believe the Sith to have been extinct for a thousand years, so why would they still be motivated by this prophecy? to destroy the Sith to bring balance. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't know if you have thoughts. <laughs> I mean, a lot of this, I think, has been fleshed out in other material. You know, the Clone Wars animated show that tries to dive a little deeper. I think the sequel trilogy tries to explain a little bit more. I see a lot of it as retconning because I don't think it was particularly well thought out. The prophecy wasn't explored much in the prequel trilogies, and I think that's one of the greatest narrative failures of the prequels is not having Anakin wrestle with that burden placed upon him. He, he doesn't even really express, oh, I am the Chosen One what does that mean for me? And I think that would have been much more interesting to have Anakin kind of wrestle with this identity. I've always thought if I had to rewrite the Revenge of the Sith, I would have him get a true messiah complex, like only I can save this galaxy. And instead, he seems very motivated just by I need to save my wife, which is an understandable motivation, but it's not a convincing motivation for him to fall to the dark side, in my opinion. But I think if he was like, I am the only one who can do this, I am the chosen one, the galaxy needs me, then I think that would be a much more potent catalyst. You know, Star Wars fans debate balance of the Force. That that might mean that the light side of the Force is the baseline of the Force, and therefore when the dark side is around, it has thrown it out of balance. I think the sequel trilogy tries to say that you need to have the dark and the light. It's almost like this yin and yang sort of understanding. But I think canonically, you know, Anakin is the chosen one. It just takes this digression through this, the original trilogy until he does kill Palpatine and then brings it into balance. I think as far as Star Wars canon is concerned, he is still the chosen one. It just took him a while until he finally did destroy the Sith. Yeah, that's George Lucas's answer is that he is the chosen one and he achieved that at the end. But I, I really struggle with this idea of billions of lives lost in order to finally get to that point. <laughs> I suppose if you go back into antiquity, we can also see in biblical stories and Greek tragedies, loss and death and war and destruction that do come alongside salvation and positive messages. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a deeply flawed series. Revenge of the Sith in particular is deeply flawed in its own way. Mm. And I think partially it's because they just fumbled the chosen one. I think George Lucas is great at coming up with stories and world building so if you if you were to explain the story of the prequels just in a few sentences it's very compelling Mm. you have this republic that's slowly crumbling because it's just mired with bureaucracy you have this jedi order who also are kind of hidebound and not really seeing what's happening crumble around them and then you have this secret senator who rises to power seizes the reins of power and then is actually the secret sith lord who foments a civil war between the confederation of planets that's a really interesting context but the way he tells the story i think is fumbled and he's not very good at writing dialogue (laughs) so the way he writes the characters i think is very bad Mm. anakin comes across in especially episode two and episode three as this very whiny character very unlikable Mm -hmm. and you can see every single part of star wars intellectual property published after the the prequel trilogies have tried to retcon Anakin as a likable mm. character and with with some degrees of success if you watch the clone wars animated show Anakin is like this swashbuckling fun somewhat cocky and occasionally scary character which in many respects, redeems the character in my mind. When I think of Anakin Skywalker, I think of the Clone Wars Anakin Skywalker. 
in the actual movies, he's this whiny character who doesn't seem to grapple with what I think are the more interesting aspects of being the chosen one. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. I find the idea that he descends to the dark side is not surprising. It's not gripping. There's no drama or heft behind Mm -hmm. it because it's just... Here we have somebody who is willing to let his grief overtake him in the second movie, and he just slaughters women, children, men, because he's upset at the death of his mother. Yeah. And then Padme just excuses that, like, oh, yeah, sometimes people get sad. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it feels so strange and forced. It's, it's just It's bad character development. I think George Lucas is like, I must show that he's evil or that he has the capacity for evil. Therefore, let's show him do really evil things. Mm. And that's that usually comes down to killing women and children. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Episode two. And then episode three, him killing the younglings. And I'm like, there are so many more interesting ways to show someone being evil or having the capacity for evil than just psychotic attacks on helpless people. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm like, I wish they could have had him have like a messiah complex. Like only I can do this because then that he would justify and legitimize all sort of moral code breaking decision making in my mind that would have made a much more believable character if we uh sort of george lucas's own assertions about what's going on aside for a minute i haven't watched all the extra stuff i haven't watched clone wars and all of that i think i'm the oldest of the bunch here i was very very much a star wars original trilogy fan and i was 16 i think when Star Wars Episode One came out and I went to see it in the theater and I thought it was such garbage. I was like, this is the worst. I'm <laughs> devastated. How could you do this to Star Wars? Betrayal. And then I never saw two and three and I never saw any of the rest. I didn't want to ruin the originals for myself mm. anymore. So I've only gone back and rewatched one, two and three for this episode. And I was like, yep. They're bad. They're bad movies. <laughs> yeah, they're bad movies. <laughs> Even when I was younger, I was I picked up on that. I remember watching episode one and thinking, huh, that wasn't as fun as the other ones are. I was like fourth grade, so I couldn't really explain why, mm. uh, but I knew, I knew something was off. Yeah. And watching Revenge of the Sith, I knew something was off. I was 16. I was old enough to like know a bad movie from a good movie. And I was old enough that I remember my feelings pretty viscerally while watching it for the first time in the theaters. And I remember the first 10 minutes are Obi-Wan and Anakin kind of like joking along. And I was like, oh, this is something that's been missing in episodes one and two. Yep. We're supposed to believe that they're these friends, but they do nothing but fight and quarrel in episode two. Obi-Wan's just constantly berating him and Anakin's constantly complaining like, oh, Obi-Wan's holding me back Mm -hmm. and so suddenly they're joking i was like this is what should have been in episode two or episode one and then i was like by the end of this movie he needs to be darth vader how does he go from like finally joking swashbuckling anakin to darth vader in two hours so i already remember feeling a bit of a like uh, where's this gonna go Mm -hmm. part of the reason why it's so flawed is like i feel like the movie is just completely it's simultaneously both better than i remember and worse than i remember Mm. in that every scene that you see anakin and palpatine together on screen i think are really really well done like ian mcdermott is just an amazing actor for Emperor Palpatine. Hayden Christensen's not that bad as an actor. He's just given terrible dialogue. But like every time that Palpatine and Anakin are on screen together are some of the best scenes of the movie. But then it's interspersed with these overblown cartoonish battles that are like literally kind of cartoony. The battle droids have a different cartoonish voice in episode three compared to episode one and two. Mm-hmm. Go back and listen to the battle droids in episode one. They're like this metallic, toneless voice. It's like, oh, these are scary kill bots. And now they're like these jokey characters. And I was like, what? I remember thinking like, why is the bat 
Well, I think that's because the cartoon came out before episode three. Is that right? I just remember thinking this like pit in my stomach. Why did the battle droids sound so dumb? (laughs) And what's one of the darkest Star Wars movies? Mm. The overblown cartoonish battles take away from what I consider a fairly well done tragedy of of Anakin turning to the dark side, even though it happens too fast Mm -hmm. over the course of a two hour movie. Again, this is just me. If I could rewrite them, I would do away with episode one and just start with Hayden Christensen as Anakin in episode one, already an adult, already a Jedi, because then you have three movies to explore the character. I completely agree. It's both too slow because he seems like obviously this guy's going to be evil and also too fast at the same time. But if we jettison out all that additional information that we get from other things and from George Lucas himself and we look just at the movie I feel like actually we can look at them as one long parable on the danger of following prophecy yeah Hmm. where he's a failed messiah figure they got it completely wrong they gave him the tools to be evil and I think in that sort of sense it might actually have something to say possibly yeah I would I would agree with you and I think I think one of the most powerful moments is when Anakin is writhing on the ground and burnt to a crisp and Obi-Wan shouts you you were the chosen one you were meant to destroy the Sith not join them mm-hmm. and I kind of like got emotional watching that for, like, I haven't watched this movie in like a decade I remember tearing up in the theater during that scene there were several moments in the movie where I remember tearing up as a 16 year old and that was one of them and I got kind of emotional watching it like it's a powerful scene because mm. it's the ultimate disconfirmation of the prophecy for Obi-Wan. It's more of a father-son relationship. They always use fraternal language, brother and you're my brother, but it's really more father and son. And he just watched Anakin just kill a bunch of little kids, destroy the the Jedi Order. And now he's sitting there presumably about to die. And as far as Obi-Wan is concerned, does die. So yeah, the ultimate prophecy failure. Yeah, the killing little kids thing. I had a really hard time with this. I was just like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, like we, we believe that Darth Vader was evil enough in the original mm-hmm. trilogy without needing to watch that. So like, again, I just think it's the ham-fisted like, oh, what do evil people do okay let's let's have them do that right like we can't think of anything that might be more subtle or more gut-wrenching at a deeper kind of level when I went and watched these three films for this I watched it with my kid who's eight years old right now and George Lucas goes on and on about their kids films you know don't criticize me they're for kids and I think first of all let's not patronize our children they can take good stories (laughs) but that scene in particular When you get all the kids in the room and we see that confrontation happen where they're looking to Anakin as an adult and an authority to help them in this scary moment. And my son just turned to me and said, he's not going to kill all the children, is he? And it was the one moment where I realized this is not this is not kids content like this is incredibly dark. Yeah, it really bothered me. It was the first Star Wars movie to get a PG-13 rating, actually. Mm. I think all the other movies were PG. And then that kind of uh, broke the seal. And I think every Star Wars movie since then has been PG-13. Right. I want to cycle back a little bit to thinking about this concept of failed prophecy. And then again, relating to the dreams. Because Anakin's visions of what are going to happen. And if I compare this with Dune, especially the recent film, Paul Atreides seems to have visions of the future, but he changes the future. So he's got a very active role in shaping the course of history, let's say. But Anakin's failure to save his mother in episode two is like it's an anxiety of his and he feels that he was too late so by his inaction he caused this to happen but in this film him actually taking 
the most proactive steps, so doing everything in his power to prevent the death of Padme, is what causes it in the end. So there seems to be this fatalistic sense to how Mm. the future is working in the Star Wars universe. So I wonder if that's also the other side of this prophecy failure, also avoiding fate as well, perhaps, is another lesson. Can you avoid fate, though? Because for me, it's a real Oedipus thing going on with Anakin. So Oedipus is a play by Sophocles, And in the play, when Oedipus is born, Oedipus's father, Laos, goes to an oracle to consult the oracle about his fortune. And he finds out that he is doomed to perish by the hand of his own son. So he gets rid of his son, basically. And Oedipus ends up being raised by two other people who he thinks are his parents. And when he's a grown man, he also consults the Delphic Oracle. And the Oracle tells him that he is going to marry his own mother and kill his own father. And he's completely desperate to avoid this fate, still believing that the people who raised him are his true parents. So he leaves Corinth and he heads to the city of Thebes, yada, yada, yada. What ends up happening is he meets his mother and marries her, but he doesn't know that she's his mother. And then he ends up killing his father. So the similar thing is happening with Anakin. He's getting these visions. He's seeing these things. He feels like he has a sense of what's to come. And in attempting to avoid that thing, the attempt to avoid it is the thing that brings that thing about. Yeah, it is kind of Greek tragedy in that respect. Mm -hmm. I don't think the motivation is necessarily a bad motivation in in trying to stop a vision that he had is believable. It works in the world that George Lucas built. It's a good enough motivation. I just don't think it's the best motivation that George Lucas could have come up with. But, you know, they talk about the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker. Star Wars fans use this term tragedy, especially episode three is a tragedy. And I think it plays out like that, trying to escape fate, trying to manipulate outcomes because of a vision, I think works. It's not, not a bad part of the story. I think the other theme that we found was really prominent is temptation. Mm. So we see Anakin get tempted over and over, and he gives in Mm. over and over. So he is tempted by his visions, but he's tempted by other things, his feelings for Padme, and his desire for more... Authority, I guess. More authority, yeah, more respect from the Jedis. All of these things that are tempting him, and he's always just going... Again, I I saw a lot of parallels to The Last Temptation of Christ because there we also see Jesus tempted over and over again. He's tempted by sexual desire and love and family and the idea of domesticity. And he's even told that the family unit is the place that one finds God, but he avoids temptation. I mean, he's Jesus, so he would. Anakin is tempted by the same sorts of things, sexual desire, love, family, and he just gives in. There's a sort of moral asceticism happening here, right? If you lead the ascetic lifestyle, then you wouldn't give in to the dark side. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, some of the most powerful scenes in the movie are the temptation scenes between Palpatine and Anakin. I think the first one that happens is when he defeats Count Dooku. Count Dooku is there on his knees with Anakin holding the lightsabers to his neck. And Palpatine's like, kill him. And Anakin, it's like this first battle that he has. You can see Hayden Christensen, you know, act out the battle like, oh, I shouldn't do it. That's not the Jedi way. And and Palpatine's like, do it. You know, that's kind of this famous <laughs> meme, like, do it. And he does. And that's actually a pretty powerful scene rewatching it. Like the sound design is absolutely haunting. Like the lightsabers are kind of squealing and mm-hmm. the, the sound effect of the lightsabers echoes through the room. The music is very ominous. O- Obi-Wan, again, has been side sidelined. He's knocked out on the side. So like, there, I think it's, you know, one of the first stellar scenes of the movie is when he is tempted and 
caves to the temptation to kill Count Dooku. But I think the most powerful scene, and actually my favorite scene in the whole movie, is like the ultimate temptation scene, which is when Palpatine and Anakin are sitting at that opera. You have like those mm. big bubbles in front of them. And the music is like this low guttural chanting. So again, the sound design is just absolutely phenomenal. And Palpatine says, leave us to his, his entourage. And it's just him and Anakin sitting there. And he's like, just slowly manipulating Anakin. It's like, oh, they don't trust you. They don't believe in the Senate or democracy, but I do. He even brings in a little bit of moral relativism. Anakin's just saying all the right things. He's like, oh, the Jedi stand for good. And Palpatine says, well, good is a point of view. It's a long scene. It's like six or seven minutes. And it's just them talking with this low, haunting music. And it ends with Palpatine telling the story of Darth Plagueis, who's heavily implied to have been the master of Palpatine. And as soon as Palpatine says, have you ever heard of the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise or something like that? Anakin, this is why I say Hayden's actually a really good actor. Anakin like turns his head. Like you can kind of see his interest has peaked. He like slowly turns to Palpatine. He's actually intrigued. Palpatine's like, oh, this is a story that the Jedi won't tell you. And again, this is masterfully acted too. So Ian McDermott's like, he has this wry smile on his face and he's like, Plagueis, the only thing he was afraid of was losing his power, but he couldn't stop himself from dying. And he has like this little smile on his face. like So beautifully acted. And that's like one of the turning points where Anakin like really is on his way to the dark side because now he's he has been given hope that he can save Padme. This is how to do it. The dark side of the force can provide that silver bullet. I agree. It was a very good scene and one of the few that I enjoyed. But when Anakin is saying, this is what the Jedi believe, this is what the Jedi believe, encounter to Palpatine, for me, that was very much Anakin reciting what he's told mm -hmm. rather than Anakin speaking from what he believes. Yeah, 100%. It kind of shows the weakness of his own training, mm -hmm. where he was like, I know the right things to say in this moment, but I'm absolutely intrigued with what you're about to say. And I'm, I very much want this power now. So he, he had like the right lines to say, but easily gave to the temptation. Mm. It's like kind of having like the, the right Bible verses memorized, but putting up no fight to give into temptation. Right. This is also following the Jedi having asked him in a very underhanded way. So Palpatine's asked Anakin essentially to spy on the Jedi Council for him, but in a very straightforward, real politic way almost. But then the way they show this mirror scene for the Jedi's Obi-Wan, his mentor, takes them aside and it's very, oh, they didn't want this on the official minutes or whatever it was. So there's this real sense of the Jedi behaving in an underhand way that they know is underhand. And then later when they go and they try to arrest Palpatine, they don't look very ready to arrest him. They look like they are there to kill him. And then that is what actually tries to happen, what will happen if Anakin doesn't intervene. So Anakin has been shown that all these things he's learnt by rote are pretty hollow. Yeah, I'd agree with that. As far as he can see, he's got quite an absolutist approach to ethics in some ways. Yeah, I mean, and the, the moral relativism comes up again at the end during the lightsaber duel between Anakin and Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan's like, you know, Emperor Palpatine's evil. And then Anakin's like, from my point of view, the Jedi are evil. So, mm. you know, to talk about absolutes and relativism, like kind of waffles between the two. Mm. Anakin does seem to have this very black and white understanding, but he kind of it gets duped into Palpatine's point of view. And Palpatine says literally in the opera scene, good is a point of view. And Anakin kind of buys into that, I think, in that conversation. Mm. He is swayed by that conversation, and then that's confirmed a few scenes later, because when Palpatine finally reveals himself, and I, I remember thinking this was such a cool scene in, in the movie theater, too, the first time I watched it, and rewatching it, I, I think so, too. 
Anakin and Palpatine are like circling each other. Like the whole scene is just them circling. They're already kind of like in a fighting stance while Palpatine tries to drive home. The Jedi are evil. They've they sent you to spy on me. You can learn from me. And then Anakin's like, how do you know these things? And suddenly it clicks like you're the Sith master and pulls out his lightsaber. But he pulls out the saber like in such a like, I'm not actually going to kill you. And then he puts it away and says, I'm going to turn you in. Mm. If Anakin wanted, he could have tried to battle him right there. And it if he really wanted to, I think that the character of Anakin would have done that. But he has already decided I'm not going to, I'm going to keep Palpatine around because I need him around to say Padme. So I kind of, I think that's the confirmation of what happened in that previous scene where he has decided to keep Palpatine around because only Palpatine can give me the information I need to say Padme. I've always liked that final reveal and Anakin's kind of inaction to actually like, oh, I'm going to go turn you in instead of confront you in, in a battle right now. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen him kill so easily. So if he was going to, he would have. But I think that's one of the places where I would agree with you that the entire story needed some rewriting because it might have played deeper if we hadn't seen him kill already because then we would see more of a wrestling with rather than that's a really decisive moment. Yeah, and it would have played harder too if they developed the Palpatine-Anakin relationship more over the course of the three movies. Like the most interaction they get is in this movie, but I think it would have been great if like from scene one of episode one, Palpatine and Obi-Wan were two different voices in his ears. Instead, Palpatine's really the voice in his ear only in episode three. There's like one or two scenes in episode two, but it's nothing compared to episode three. I agree. Scorned it. Completely. But since we are here mostly, not mostly, at least in part, to talk about religion, we love movies, so we are here to talk about movies too, but (laughs) do you see a religion in Star Wars? Because a lot of articles have been written on Christian intertextuality and Star Wars and Buddhist intertextuality and Star Wars and Taoist intertextuality and Star Wars, but I don't really see a lot of religion in Star Wars beyond the asceticism of the Jedi. What do you guys see? There's some kind of beliefs. And as we've already mentioned, someone's giving out prophecies. There's some kind of future predictive thing that also seems to be a claim about the forces of good and evil. It's not necessarily like an end times prophecy, but there is something about that one who brings balance to the force that is messianism in a way. So it's projecting something. But I wouldn't say there's a clearly developed system of religion or deeper understanding of religion. I think it's pieces here and there that make for compelling parts of a story rather than fleshed out world yeah i mean i don't think george lucas is extremely sophisticated some star wars fans might crucify me for that like it's kind of ham-fisted sometimes i you know the jedi are kind of monastic they have a temple they dress kind of like monks so obviously it's taking beats from religion there Mm -hmm. i I am currently writing a series on taoism for religion for breakfast so taoism is very much in my mind the way that the tao is described is very much like the force it's like this all-encompassing all-pervasive process that generative organic order that just kind of creates the universe and suffuses the universe so i have not looked into this but i would not be surprised if george lucas got that idea from taoism that has been explored in a couple chapters which we will link to on our website i don't know enough about the field It, it sounds like it but and then you know the virgin birth Anakin being a chosen one, kind of this messianic figure, uh, all of that, I think, are ham-fistedly torn from Christianity. Yeah, there's those elements, but then there's also a lack of clarity around why, rather than there's something important, like a meaning of life someone's searching for, a belief in a deity, you know, the conventional things that a Western Christianized academy would construct as religion, I guess. 
it, it's not a major part. You know, like the Chosen One prophecy is really not fleshed out as much as it could have been. Mm-hmm. It comes up occasionally, and it comes up in that very climactic scene at the end of Revenge of the Sith, but Anakin has never shown wrestling with it. Mm-hmm. Obi-Wan is never sitting there talking about what does this really mean. So it, it is kind of, I think any religion that's in Star Wars is kind of accoutrement. Yeah, there, there's no like... You know, there's there's no big temple on Coruscant. I mean, there's the Jedi Temple, but it seems to be a big hall that they hang out in. It's like the Justice League Hall of Friends or whatever it's called, more so than the Holy See, for instance. They've got these elements that you would associate to, oh yeah, they keep an archive and they take on disciples, adherents, and they train them and then, and then they're out off proselytizing with lightsabers in the universe. But there, there's that kind of... Okay, let's be very reductive about religion in some sense. What are the rituals of the Jedi? What are the beliefs of the Jedi beyond some kind of sense of the Force being around us? It is very hand-wavy. So if we're looking for things that would help flesh out an understanding of what does it mean to be a Jedi, there's very little beyond actually being a member. It's interesting in some ways the real-world counterpart that people put Jedi on their census returns or they used to. Star Wars fandom turned into some kind of expression of identity and belief and lifestyle. But a lot of that is almost hollowed out in Star Wars itself. Mm. So I think it's it's like a receptacle of influence in one way. So drawing from these Buddhist and Taoist and Christian ideas from religion. Yeah. And then and then it churns something out. Yeah. I mean, like the, the, the religion side of Star Wars that I see is actually like in real life, like the, the idea of canon and canonizing what intellectual property counts as actual Star Wars lore. That's like something we see play out in the Star Wars fandom, which I find very interesting. But that's more, that's like real life religion, not the the fictional religion of Star Wars. It's a really good point, though. Maybe we should talk about that. Yeah. Can you say more about your thoughts around canonization Star Wars and maybe mapping onto perhaps early Christian canonical development, but maybe more? George Lucas is kind of like God in that he like gave us the Bible, which is the original trilogy in the movies. Uh, And then you have like this Apostle Paul figure who comes along, who's David Filoni, who's the creator of the Clone Wars TV show. Uh, David Filoni was like taught at the feet of George Lucas on set of these movies. So he's kind of tapped as like the successor of George Lucas to continue to tell the story even after George Lucas has left. The debates over canon were more interesting before Disney bought the franchise. Mm -hmm. So before there was no set canon you had of course the movies then you had a whole bunch of video games and novels that were written throughout the 80s and 90s you know like han and leia get married and have these three kids and luke skywalker gets married and has his kid like there's this whole expanded universe that happens up until like 2012 i forget when disney bought it i think it was 2012 where there were actual debates and there was actually a hierarchy there's the s canon or the george lucas canon then you had an a canon it's like this stuff is like influenced by george lucas george lucas actually wrote it or he okayed it so this is definitely like a deutero canon of some sort and then there's like the comic books are definitely not canon the video games may or may not be canon so there's a lot of debates after disney bought the franchise though disney was like from now on everything is canon they swept away the old stuff they relabeled it legends star wars legends and you can still go into a barnes and noble today and pick up a novel that says like star wars legends on it which is like this is not canon Every novel, every video game, every TV show that has ever been published since 2012 is now officially canon. 
And the creators at Lucasfilm actually have like a whole department to keep the, the canon straight. Wow. So it's, it has been very much systematized here since the, the Disney buyout, which is great. And I think for a lot of fans that they're intrigued by that, because now when they pick up a novel, a Star Wars novel, there's skin in the game. Like this actually happens in the history of Star Wars. Uh, so I think that's exciting as a Star Wars fan. I do not envy <laughs> the people running that that canonicity board because it just gets increasingly more bloated. As the decades will go on, they're, they're going to run into the same issues you see in Christian canonization process where source material will contradict and you're going to try to retcon stupid decision making that was made by some author t- 20 years ago and you have to reinterpret it. You know, like the chosen one prophecy had to be re- reinterpreted. Oh, he was the chosen one. It just took a 30 year hiatus. Right. Definitely not a failed messiah. Definitely did what he was supposed to do. Yeah. All of the murder along the way. We can scrub it out. And then Palpatine comes back in the sequel trilogy. Oh, but he was still the chosen one. <laughs> they had to constantly retcon as stupid decisions are made right so I, I just find that fascinating and, and especially pre-disney i think was most fascinating because there were actual debates on star wars forums trying to canonize certain aspects of the star wars canon and then have disney like showing like the power of corporations in the 21st century like imagine if a corporation could canonize christian scripture well to have this corporation be like this is suddenly like no longer canon constantine <laughs> I, I feel like even constantine was less successful in disney in this regard <laughs> And Constantine and like early Christian bishops only had so much coercive powers. Like if you were some monk living off in the desert of Egypt and you want to read the Gospel of Thomas or some Valentinian Gnostic text, like who's going to stop you? <laughs> right. And the Nagamati codices were probably made by monks in a monastery. So like Disney has much more centralized power when it comes to canonizing than Constantine ever did. Disney doesn't have its hands in every corner of the internet. <laughs> That's though. true. You know. <laughs> I, I like the idea of the expanded universe in some ways because you're just like, oh yeah, all this just exists out there. And then you pick a mix and create what you want. And a lot of it exists in conflict or tension or whatever. And that, at least to me, reflects early emerging textual communities because it's lots and lots of different groups or individuals creating stuff and it being out there yeah. rather than a centralized sorting. Canon is fascinating in many ways because it takes place over quite a long time. There's this element of authorization, but then that's negotiated with well, what are people actually reading? And what we tend to mm-hmm. find is what's popular. Yeah, what, what is making an impact on people? What do they enjoy? What do they engage with? Mm-hmm. And what we tend to find, and we find this within the New Testament when it is quoting from the Hebrew Bible, we tend to find it's really interested in key texts. It's really interested in the Psalms. It's interested in Isaiah and the Torah. So we find in not just the New Testament, but in other places, so early Jewish cross-citation, so in texts that make up pseudepigrapha, apocrypha, emerging rabbinic literature, then we see that there is an interest in some specific works and they are shared across texts with a wide-ranging interest and others are a bit more marginal there is a group of texts often called the apocrypha which form a so-called deuterocanon so these are things that are like kind of canonical kind of not and depending on who you ask they're different so we get some agreement around certain texts and lots of debate around other ones so we seem to have these conversations let's say amongst different groups over what counts as important and what doesn't 
So even within a conception of canon, you have things that are slightly more core and things are slightly less core, but then they can all be kind of included in canon. There's this term headcanon. Mm. This is the canon in my head because I'm so upset by these books or this IP or whatever, I'm just going to ignore that. Mm. And I always found headcanon to be kind of silly, but like some of the sequel trilogies made me so sad that I, I've now kind of come up with my own headcanon because like I just can't. <laughs> it causes psychic trauma to think about uh, the the. <laughs> what is it episode nine i even forget what it's called um the rise of skywalker hmm. the, the rise of skywalker is so bad i have never watched it a second time i went back to the theaters five times to watch the force awakens i went back to the theaters three times to watch the last jedi i did not like the last jedi a lot of star wars fans say it's like the best or the worst i think it was pretty bad Similar to Revenge of the Sith, The Last Jedi has some amazing scenes. Every time Luke, Rey, or Kylo Ren are on screen, it's an amazing movie. And anytime anyone else is on screen, it's an awful movie. And then The Rise of Skywalker was so bad, and I hated it so much, I've never watched it a second time. So, like, in my own headcanon, like, that movie did not happen. Yeah. The King of Kings was sort of jokingly, at the time, referred to as if I was a teenage Jesus, <laughs> just because of, of the character of Jesus in that. And I thought that so much with Kylo Ren. When I saw The Force Awakens, it was just if I was a teenage Darth Vader. Yeah. Because you get the same sort of... Well, I think a lot of the problems in Anakin's character are there in Kylo Ren's character. And I think the same way I ditched out on the prequel trilogy, I ditched out on the sequel trilogy. Yeah. For me, it's just four, five, six. They're perfect three <laughs> fun movies done. Yeah. I The way I've seen it described is the Star Wars franchise is like a restaurant menu. And when you go to a, your favorite restaurant, you haven't even necessarily tried everything on the menu, but you definitely are ordering the same thing several times when you go back. The Star Wars franchise is a menu, and I will very rarely order Star Wars Episode Nine, but I will frequently think about and order, <laughs> you know, the original trilogy. Uh, I, the Mandalorian, I think, is some of the best Star Wars yep. content that's been created. It's very since the Disney buyout. Um, I thought Solo was well done. Parts of it were pretty stupid, but I was kind of disappointed that Disney chickened out and didn't make any more Solo movies. Um, but So there, there's there's like glimmers of good content. I don't know. Even Star Wars has always been kind of campy. Like the original trilogy is good, but like there were Star Wars cartoons being made in the 80s that are absolutely awful. There were Star Wars comic books being made in the 90s that are just like unreadable. So like Star Wars content has always been kind of hit or miss. And it's just unfortunately some of the misses have been very high profile blockbuster films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Andrew, it's been so great having you with us today, but before we let you go, we'd love for you to pitch us a pairing. This can be anything, anything at all that you would pair with Star Wars Episode 3. Maybe a drink, a food, another movie, a book, an article or piece of music. The stars are the limit. So I've mentioned so much of the uh, Star Wars spin-off literature, so I would recommend watching some of the Star Wars spin-off literature because they do redeem the prequels in some respects. Like The prequels are almost unwatchable, but the story, I think, has merit. And I think George Lucas put together a very believable context. Uh, and so the Star Wars uh, Clone Wars cartoon in particular is redeems the character Anakin, makes it makes him more likable, makes his fall to the dark side more devastating. And there's a particular uh, three-part series in season three of The Clone Wars that dives deeper into Anakin's role as the Chosen One, where he goes and visits like these almost godlike personifications of the Force. And there's this one figure called the Father who's holding these two other figures in balance called the Son and the Daughter. The Son represents the dark side of the Force, the Daughter represents the light side of the Force. And like Anakin kind of allies himself with the Son uh, and the father gets killed off. So there's like this kind of interesting, hmm. and you don't even know if it really happens. It might all be like an Anakin's head. 
Um, but this going back to David Filoni being kind of this Apostle Paul of Star Wars IP now. David Filoni is a master storyteller. Disney is so lucky to have him because Star Wars would just be completely terrible without him. And so David Filoni writes these very interesting mystical journeys in the Clone Wars that kind of flesh out the role of the Chosen One, kind of redeem Anakin as a character. So if you want to like watch the prequel trilogy with new eyes, go watch the, the so-called Mortis arc in season three of the Clone Wars. Thank you very much. I might have to actually give it a try. Thanks for the recommendation. And thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Style to Kid. As always, you can follow us at GodMovPod on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to our website, GodsAndMovieMakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. May the force be with you. Bye.